You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. What does it take to be an entrepreneur and how is it changing in our ever-evolving business landscape? This is Scott Galloway, host of the Prop G Podcast and an entrepreneur myself. Right now, we've got a special three-part series running all about the future of entrepreneurship. We're answering your questions on work-life balance, how to raise capital for your business, and more. Because when you're an entrepreneur, it's always important to look ahead at what's to come. So tune in to the Future of Entrepreneurship, a Prop G Pod special sponsored by Mercury. You can find it on the Prop G Pod feed or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, and welcome to another episode of The Weeds. I'm your host for today, Marin Kogan. We heard this phrase a lot after the 2020 elections, and it's almost become a cliche. This idea that Latinos are not a monolith. Yeah, you know, here in Florida, and frankly around the country, it's, you know, 31 flavors of Latinos. And so when we talk about the Latino vote, it can be very, very misunderstood and misguided to just try to paint it in one broad stroke. It's true, and yet it doesn't really get us any closer to understanding the fastest-growing voting bloc in the country. And while polls show most Latinos are supporting Biden, Stephanie Tsai reports that Latinos are not a completely united voting bloc. Traditionally, Democrats have been able to count on Latino voters to deliver their electoral victories. But in 2020, Republicans gained some ground with them, particularly in Texas and South Florida, which, of course, led to a whole lot of premature celebrating from Republicans and a whole lot of soul-searching from Democrats. Latinos are not a monolith, unlike other segments of the voting population. The reality is that both parties need to win Latino voters in the upcoming midterms and beyond. And yet both parties and the media still struggle to articulate what they mean when they talk about the Latino voter, what that person's background is, what their values are. We even struggle over what to call them. In this month's issue of The Highlight, my colleagues here at Vox took a nuanced look at Latino and Hispanic voters from lots of different angles. And I'm going to sit down with a couple of them to talk about what they learned and what we should know as we head into the midterm elections. Just a note, we'll use both Latino and Hispanic in this conversation, though they don't necessarily mean the same thing. When we say Latino, we generally mean someone who traces their family origins to Latin America, while Hispanic refers more broadly to people with Spanish-speaking ancestry. Okay, let's get to it. First up, I'm going to talk to Vox senior political reporter Christian Paz, who wrote a profile of Congressman Ruben Gallego for the September issue. Christian, thanks so much for joining me. Thanks so much for having me. So Ruben Gallego was first elected to Congress in 2014, and in less than a decade, the Arizona Democrat has become one of the party's most outspoken leaders. 
and critics. He has a lot of strongly held convictions about what the Democratic Party needs to do to defeat Trumpism and how they need to strengthen their messaging for Latino voters. Tell me about how you first met Ruben Gallego and what made you want to profile him. Ruben Gallego is definitely the kind of congressman that you probably have heard of or maybe seen a tweet. He's very outspoken. He's a very avid tweeter. And that's he actually... He is wild on Twitter. Oh, yes, he is. <laughs> and he, he embraces that. But yeah, I got to know him first after the 2020 election. He had this tweet that went kind of viral, at least in political circles. There was a, somebody who asked and tagged him, and this person was a liberal person, liberal voter, and was saying, you know, how do we reach out to to the Latinx community? How do we, as a party, improve our work with Latinx community, was the question. And he quote tweeted it. He elevated it and said, well, the first thing you have to do is not use the word Latinx. And that was the line that really launched a thousand takes, really had everyone weighing in. And this word, you know, every few months or so, it dominates discussions online. It provokes people to write think pieces. And his, his take was not to use the term. And then in the tweet, he says, second, we have to be in front of them year round, not just in election years. That is what we did in Arizona. And he was saying this because of how Latinos voted in 2020. It was obviously a surprise to a lot of Democrats to see that, one, obviously the polling we know now was not necessarily as accurate, but polling had showed tighter races in Florida, in Arizona, in Texas that would potentially benefit Democrats. And a lot of that was the assumption that Latinos who voted strongly against Donald Trump in 2016 might repeat that trend that assumption was wrong. And he was kind of raising two points there about the best way to communicate with Latino voters and the fact that this requires long-term engagement, not just in the last weeks of a campaign. I'm really curious how that tweet struck you as someone who has covered politics for a long time. I mean, I remember seeing that tweet saying, stop saying Latinx. And I had kind of known vaguely that it was a sort of controversial term, but it was really clarifying to see a politician state it in that way. Like it helped me understand the controversy a little bit better. So I'm really curious as someone who has covered this stuff, when you saw that tweet, what were you thinking about what he was saying there? Yeah, I think he was definitely trying to point out a symptom of a larger problem. After that tweet went out, there was a whole bunch of discussion over, is it right to be criticizing folks who use this word? Is it right to be using the word at all, right? Because I think there was polling around that time that showed that not many, even Hispanic and Latino people in the U.S. were aware of the term or used the term to describe themselves, even though that was a word that was being used by a lot of progressive and a lot of liberal candidates, groups, folks in media, of course. And it was interesting because he was pushing back against this idea, this kind of top-down sense he picked up on that maybe voters, people who were receiving political ads or messaging or flyers or things like that, that there was some sense of people who might consider themselves smarter or more you know, well-versed in Latino politics or in Latino identity. They were looking down or trying to push this word onto normal people. Whether that's true or not, that's what he felt. And it was, in a way, refreshing to see somebody who knew what they believed in, was willing to double down on something and explain it, but be understanding and respectful. Because you always, when you get into terms of identity, self-identification, you either you know, have folks who are 
absolutely opposed and in some ways disingenuous when they're trying to criticize you, or maybe folks who don't understand and just want to hear anything and be willing to accommodate whatever words or terms or descriptions somebody wants to use. So it sounds like Gallego, from reading your piece, he sort of has a problem with the Democratic Party, uh, even though he's a part of it, and specifically how they talk to Latinos. And like, can you just explain what's his deal? What's his beef with the way that Democrats talk to and address Latino voters? This is something I was really trying to get him to explain. Like one quick way that you would describe what what your deal is, what Democrats might be getting wrong. And it's not that easy. Um, he was very clear, though, in that the problem is that Latino voters obviously are a very diverse group. We would refer to them as people of color, as minority voters, as a minority in the U.S. because they are an ethnic minority. But he says that that's not necessarily the best way to view voters and to talk to them, especially because, and this is backed up by polling and by surveys and focus groups, in more recent elections, they have tended to behave more and more like just your average white voter and are as complicated as your average white voter. And that means being concerned about the price of meat, being concerned about the price of gas, being concerned about sending their kids to school, and not so much as has tended to be the case in D.C. and among a lot of Democrats in in the Capitol, which is only thinking about them in terms of immigration, social justice issues, or other social issues, which obviously do matter to them, but don't necessarily break through as much as economic concerns. And so he wants to make Democrats think about Latino voters in obviously a nuanced way and to try to, once again, meet them where they are and explain how the Democratic Party stands for the American dream. What's his theory about why Democrats underperformed with some Latino communities in 2020? One of the things I appreciated from your piece is that, I, you know, there were so many hot takes right after the election about Um, Democrats underperforming with Latino voters and what does it all mean? And I think you put it in context well that Latino and Hispanic voters overwhelmingly still voted for Democrats, but there were some surprising sort of areas of slippage. Mm. Um, And I know he has some thoughts about why that happened. So what's his theory? I think one thing to point out, and he pointed this out too, I was with him in Phoenix. It was so hot. And we were out there in the desert walking from door to door, house to house, talking to his constituents. It was primary day. He was trying to get them out. That is something that didn't necessarily happen across the country in 2020 because there was a pandemic, as we know. Some Democrats didn't do a ton of in-person campaigning. But that gets back to this other thing that makes 2020 different, which is he thinks that there was still a lack of early and pretty comprehensive nuanced outreach to Latino voters throughout the election that year. And you were running against, you know, Joe Biden was running against an incumbent president, which gives him some advantages given that President Trump started campaigning pretty early and started campaigning with Latino voters specifically in swing states like Florida and Texas very early and cemented his message about economic opportunity and growth and defending those communities against the specter of socialism or liberal Democrats in the U.S., That's one reason to view 2020 differently when comparing it to 2016, where then candidate Trump did really, really poorly in that specific demographic group. But he also thinks that the slippage in this most recent election was also due to Democrats not having a strong enough message, obviously, on the economy and specifically to engage 
new segments of the electorate. He points out that in Arizona, something that Democrats have done and progressive and liberal activists in the state, especially Latino activists who've been organizing since the early 2000s, 2010s to make sure that Latinos who were growing up and entering the voting population in the state knew that there was a way to express anger in the state against some of the very aggressive, overbearing policies and legislation that was passed by Republicans in the state or pushed or enforced by people like Sheriff Joe Arpaio in Maricopa County, where Gallego now is representative, and ensure that there was a base of support and political power there to eventually make an impact in the voting booth. And a lot of that was due to young Latinos entering the electorate and voting for the first time in 2020. And he points out that there was record turnout in Arizona in that last election that maybe didn't reflect itself also in places like Florida, where you also saw a lot of older Latino voters going out who, in his mind, tend to vote more Republican. And that those nuances and differences between different populations and experiences, Florida hasn't had a similar experience to what Arizona had um, in the Governor Jan Brewer, Sheriff Joe Arpaio era. And that also helps to explain part of what happened in 2020. I was trying to contextualize in my own mind, like, what is this guy's deal? What are his politics? Where is he coming from? And the best read I could come up with is that it's like part populism and it's part pugilism. It's this idea that Democrats <laughs> need to talk directly to Latino voters about things like inflation and jobs and health care. And I think that's really interesting. I mean, there's this notion that like Democrats are sometimes only talking about immigration. But no, he's saying it's like we need to address these kitchen table issues. We need to basically treat these voter not as like a minority, quote unquote, voting bloc, but like they're the average American voter, but also that they need to fight fire with fire uh, and that they need to hit hard against Trumpism and not try to like, you know, hold on to this notion of decorum that maybe no longer exists in politics. Why does he think that element, that sort of pugilism is necessary for Latino voters? Because he is a very feisty, he's a very, very feisty individual. And I wonder if that's partly the politics of Arizona, like you mentioned, or if he has some broader theory about why that's really important to do. I asked him this question because it seems like everyone in politics these days wants to call themselves a fighter. And then he gave a little bit of a, of a flashback to his own experience. He's a combat veteran. He fought in Iraq during the Iraq war. And uh, he says, a lot of people just don't want to rock the boat, especially in Congress. He gave me this example of like, conservative or moderate Latinos sometimes or conservative or moderate members of Congress are worried about rocking the boat. But then how do you explain to the Latino carpenter um, why they haven't gotten a raise in the minimum wage, why they haven't felt as much of the boom in economic growth that the country has gone through over the last 10 years? And he says, that's part of the reason why you have to speak directly to folks. You have to talk plainly. And you do have to be the way you put you put it, pugilistic in a way, in terms of embracing that politics has changed post Donald Trump, that being a fighter requires you actually showing people that you care, speaking on issues and news as it's happening with the same emotion and fervor that some people feel. And that was most clearly visible after the Supreme Court's draft opinion leaked, where there was kind of a scramble among Democrats to kind of have a very good national response or show at least that they had an idea of a strategy that they would employ. And he admits that, you know, that is one case that 
Democrats very, very clearly failed. But connecting that to Latino voters specifically, it is incumbent on Democrats to talk clearly about those kitchen table issues, talk about class issues and how they intersect um, with different parts of the Latino electorate and then the greater American electorate, but be, you know, aggressive and be proactive in claiming victories and in calling out your wins and taking those wins to people and not, you know, he really hated um, when I was asking him about um, about 2020 and Democrats losing Latino voters. And he went on a tangent where he was like, Democrats are so willing to just accept defeat sometimes. I'm paraphrasing. Uh, so pessimistic. You know, we didn't lose Latino voters. We actually won them. We didn't win them by as much. And Democrats should raise their heads and recognize, yeah, well, we lost some of them. We still won the election. We have a trifecta. We have to show that we can actually get things done. And when we do get things done, show them directly to voters and talk to people directly and not be afraid to hold town halls and not be afraid to go door to door and explain how it pays off to have Democrats in government. I do think that that is a critique that's been lobbed against the Democratic Party. I think somewhat convincingly is just, you know, there was this notion after 2020 that Democrats have counted on minority voters to deliver victories to them and then not necessarily given them strong reasons to continue voting for them and that voters are not stupid. You know, they they want to see results. And if they don't feel like a party is delivering, then, you know, they are potentially up for grabs. I wonder, one, if he shares that sentiment, and two, if that sentiment has shifted um, as we see sort of Democrats really gearing up for the midterms and trying to show tangible results um, on a number of issues. Uh, is he feeling any differently about the midterms? When reporting out my story, we talked before the announcement between Chuck Schumer and Joe Manchin that there had been an agreement on the Inflation Reduction Act. And then we talked after. And gosh, there was such a difference in both how he was feeling, how he was describing prospects for Democrats. He was trying to be optimistic before. And he was saying, you know, we will be pushing this kind of a, a protect initiative was what he call, kind of called it. Um, we'll protect you from the extremes of the Republican Party. We'll protect your access to reproductive rights. We'll protect the American dream and democracy. And that all seemed very, very, you know, defensive, very, very uh, reactive. And he he was telling me, right, the thing that Democrats need to realize is People want you to do things, want you to do things with power, not be afraid to wield it. It's part of the reason he's frustrated with one of the current senators of Arizona, Kirsten Sinema, because of her opposition to the filibuster. And he's called her out many times for that because he feels like there's so much more that Democrats could do. And this is true. There is so much more that Democrats could do if they had gotten rid of the filibuster. And so the do something actually happened. We were in Arizona a week or so later. The Inflation Reduction Act was being finalized. Kirsten Cinema was one of those last remaining holdouts trying to negotiate a few things out of the deal. And he was telling me it's just incredible that, you know, she had a minimal role in getting that done and now is holding it up. But he was so much more optimistic once we were out talking to voters because now Democrats can point to at least three things that they've done, at least four things that they've done, and then also that is building on that that message of we will protect you. 
Okay, I want to ask you a little bit about him and Senator Cinema because it does seem like there's some drama there. And you deal with this in the piece. There's a lot of talk in Arizona that he might take her on in 2024. I'm curious how likely you think it is that he will challenge her for her Senate seat. And if that happens, what does that represent? It feels like it's going to be a huge race if it happens. He has been very, very outspoken in his criticisms of, uh, of Senator Cinema both on Twitter, in interviews, on TV, in Congress, when speaking about, uh, you know, some of the frustrations with the Senate and the filibuster. He has been pretty cautious in the past about talking about challenging her, partially because he told me that he wouldn't want to do something that hurts the party because he has spent so much of his career in the state building up the state party, its infrastructure, its outreach, its pipeline of candidates. And he doesn't want to do damage in a primary where maybe he wouldn't win or maybe he wouldn't be the best candidate. It's risky, right? It's risky, yeah, because yeah. inherently a primary splits your party. Yeah. But he has softened a little bit on that. He's been a little less coy about his thoughts on primarying cinema. Some of his fundraising material this year has hinted that he's thinking about it and that he would take it more seriously. But when I asked him, he wouldn't give me a yes or no answer. He would just say, you know, haven't made up my mind on it. It's going to depend on what the people of Arizona say. But then being out there with him among voters who recognized him in his district and would come up to talk to him, it was just spontaneous the way people would just say, you need to challenge Senator Sinema. Like, she's not letting Biden's agenda through. We need to see you serving in a higher office. And obviously, I was trying to see how he interacted with these voters and just talk to people. And he sounded like a statewide candidate. He sounded like somebody who would probably slip into saying if I were your senator or something like that. So I think I think there's a high likelihood that he'll that he'll make that decision. So yeah, I would I would bet on him running. When you look at the things that Gallego is talking about, he's saying that we need to be talking about inflation, jobs, healthcare, all of these kitchen table issues. It does seem as though he's saying Yes, speak directly to Latino voters, but treat them as though they're the average American voter, not like a special interest group or a minority group. And I'm just curious, is that theory supported by any of the polling that we're seeing this election cycle? If you look at how Latinos specifically have rated specific issues, it is inflation, it is affordability, it is the economy that comes first. And in previous elections, it's always tended to be economy healthcare, education that tend to come up as like the top three things that Latino voters uh, rate um, as their concerns in those elections. I believe that was true in 2018 in those midterms. And it's why Democrats who did run on healthcare, the economy did rather well too. That is how they rated things in 2016, even though Donald Trump was making immigration a big centerpiece. And there are a bunch of debates among Latino experts, you know, whether they're pollsters or analysts or strategists, that talk about how that ended up hurting Trump too, because immigration wouldn't have been a thing that was at the top of Latino voters' mind, but he made it a, th a thing um, and he made it less of a deal in 2020. And so focusing more on the economy ended up winning over some of those voters who were ranking that first. And so there is some evidence for that. And right now, obviously, with inflation still high, um, it ends up chipping away at the you know, financial stability that this group of voters has. 
already coming out of the pandemic, it took a lot of time for Latinos in the U.S. to recover some of the savings, some of the economic losses that they endured during the pandemic, getting back to work and such. And it was especially true because Latinos already have very little relative to other demographic groups in the country, little in savings, little in emergency funds. And so that hit was pretty strong. And that's especially why he wants to talk about those economic issues and why the democratic agenda would be better. We'll see how much that works, who really uses that pitch, and whether that pays off later this year. We will. Okay, well, thank you so much for chatting with me. I think he is a fascinating person. I thought your profile was fascinating, and I really appreciate you taking some time to unpack that. Yeah, for sure. Okay, up next, I want to dive into an issue that will play a major role in the midterm elections, and that's abortion. But first, a quick break. Support for The Weeds comes from Not Another Politics podcast from the Harris School of Public Policy. With the constant news cycle, there's a lot of noise out there. Opinions are plastered all over social media, pundits are throwing out hot takes without any sort of context, and it's only getting worse as we dive farther into election season. We know that if you're listening to us at The Weeds, you're looking to cut through all this. And if you like this show, you might like Not Another Politics Podcast. Not Another Politics Podcast is produced by the University of Chicago Harris School of Public Policy. They want to take a research and data approach to analyzing hot-button issues and offer perspectives that go beyond the headlines. They cover a wide variety of topics in their episodes, but a few recent episodes that you can listen to include a deep dive into why women are underrepresented in U.S. politics or whether or not we can believe political surveys. You can listen and subscribe today at harris.uchicago.edu slash nap. That's N-A-P-P. What does it take to be an entrepreneur and how is it changing in our ever-evolving business landscape? This is Scott Galloway, host of the Prop G Podcast and an entrepreneur myself. Right now, we've got a special three-part series running all about the future of entrepreneurship. We're answering your questions on work-life balance, how to raise capital for your business, and more. Because when you're an entrepreneur, it's always important to look ahead at what's to come. So tune in to the future of entrepreneurship of Prop G Pod, special sponsored by Mercury. You can find it on the Prop G Pod feed or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to The Weeds. I'm Maren Kogan, your host for today. One of the, if not the biggest political story of the year, is the overturning of Roe versus Wade. Box politics reporter Nicole Nerea has done some reporting on how Hispanic voters, and particularly Christians, feel about abortion rights. And what she found was really surprising. Nicole, thanks for joining me. Thanks so much for having me. I want to talk to you about the Kansas ballot initiative that would have allowed state lawmakers to further restrict abortion rights. It failed by a shockingly wide margin, about 18 percent. And Nicole, what role did Latino voters and Hispanic majority counties play in the outcome in Kansas? So I think what's interesting about the Kansas vote, which happened last month, is that it gave us a first glimpse into how voters are thinking about the end of row. And that includes Hispanic voters. Kansas is, is not a state with a major population center of Hispanics. Only about 11% of the population is Hispanic. Um, but it does have these four Hispanic majority counties, all of which are in really rural areas of the state and voted for Trump by big margins in 2020. They were also expected to vote for this amendment by big margins. 
But what, what actually happened was the results were much closer than anticipated in three of those counties. In Finney and Ford counties, the margin was just four points. And in Seward County, it was 50-50. And it's notable because these places are places where the Catholic Church has a lot of influence. So I, I do think that it is a data point as we're looking towards what might happen in November uh, in terms of how Hispanic voters are, are perceiving this issue. So you talked to an organizer working against the ballot initiative, Alejandro Rango Lopez, who was out speaking to voters in Latino neighborhoods about the issue. What did he tell you about the sentiments that he found among voters when it comes to abortion? So the way that he described it, many of the people he canvassed were personally against abortion. They wouldn't want to get one themselves or may not want one of their family members to get one. But they believe that the choice ought to exist for others. And that was true even among people who identified as Catholic or Christian. Interestingly, he did say that invoking some of the language of the feminist movement in Latin America helped him get through to some older Latino voters. He speculated maybe it was because they might know what it's like to live in countries where abortion is or, or was illegal. It is an issue that's been like liberalizing in, in Latin American countries recently, but, but even so, they're sort of more in line with some of the most restrictive states in the U.S. So um, there is an element of them perhaps being affected by it or knowing what it's like. One other thing is I think, you know, the language that the organizers used to advocate against the amendment might have been appealing to uh, Hispanic voters in the sense that it was framed as a matter of rights being taken away of, of government overreach. And I think that's different than trying to sort of pit anti-abortion advocates against pro-abortion advocates and maybe sort of appeals to a bit of a libertarian streak there. So interesting. Okay, so, I mean, we have what he was hearing just talking to voters, but what does the polling say about Hispanic voters and their stances on abortion? So I think Republicans like to say that Hispanics are more conservative than their voting patterns would suggest. And that's because uh, they say a large proportion of the Hispanic population in the U.S. does identify as Christian, um, specifically Catholic. But also there's a growing contingent of evangelicals. But when it comes to abortion, most Hispanics are actually pro-choice, which is what we know from polling. 66% of Hispanics overall support abortion in most or all cases. The data is a little fuzzier on what kind of restrictions on abortion they support, like the number of weeks at which it should be banned. And some pollsters I've talked to said that we can't really get great data on that. But most Hispanics do believe that it should be available in some form. So if the expectation is that if they're Christian identifying that they might be more pro-life, why did the polls say that they aren't necessarily as anti-abortion as one might expect, given that sort of religious context? It is true that most Hispanics are Christian even more so than white Americans. Exactly half of Hispanics identify as Catholic, though that share has been on decline over the last decade. And that may be partially because Hispanics are a very young population and younger people tend to be less religious, but more of them are also converting to evangelical Protestantism, about 14% of the population. But, you know, like, obviously, Catholic and evangelical churches are unequivocally anti-abortion, so you would think that that would carry right. over to their political views. But but that's not really what we've seen in, in practice they haven't historically tried to sort of force their religious views on other people. It's not what's driving their behavior at the polls. And, you know, that may be changing given the rise in Hispanic evangelicals who are sort of more explicit in wanting U.S. law to be shaped by their Christian values. But, you know, even then, I, I talked to an, a Latino evangelical pastor in Florida who said that his parishioners aren't single-issue voters on abortion, which I think is is really interesting. And he thinks mm -hmm. that they have a really nuanced view of what being pro-life, uh, in his words, means. 
And it's not just abortion, but it should be supporting families like throughout life. And that's where he feels that both parties have fallen short. This is sort of backed up by polling as well. You know, there was a August poll by Mi Familia Vota and Unidos US, where Latino eligible voters were asked whether they agreed with this statement. No matter what my personal beliefs about abortion are, I think it is wrong to make abortion illegal and to take that choice away from everyone else. And the results were really interesting. Among Catholics, 76% agreed. And even among Republicans, 55% agreed. And a third strongly. So I think that kind of gives you a sense of where they are and, and just kind of this notion that even though they are they are religious, it's not necessarily something that they're looking to extend to their political life. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit more about that. What are some of the factors besides religion that shape Latinos' views on abortion? I mean, we talked a little bit about the sort of age gap and, and the role that that might play. We talked about, particularly with older voters, the context of you know, abortion rights in, in their home countries. I'm just curious, what are, what are the factors other than religion? Because it seems like religion is definitely not the only thing when it comes to determining their views on abortion. Yeah, so I think, you know, age is the obvious one. The Latino population is so much younger than than white Americans with an average age of 28 compared to 43. So just by nature of that, Latino Americans may be more likely to seek abortion care um, and be more affected by abortion bans simply because they're in their prime reproductive years. And that tracks with what we've seen in polling. Uh, there's definitely a higher level of support for abortion among Latinos under the age of 35. But also of the, many of them live in states that have already restricted abortion are now expected to do so now that Roe v. Wade has been overturned. So as of August, seven of the 20 states where legal fights are underway over abortion bans and, and other laws that limit the procedure are states where Hispanics make up at least 10% of the population. In five of those states, they number at least a million. You know, this is, isn't just post-Roe. I'm in Texas, and we've been living with the six-week abortion ban here since September 2021. That ban is disproportionately impacting Hispanic women since one in five live below the poverty line and are therefore less likely to have medical insurance and also less likely to have the means to pay for the extra costs that come with having to travel out of state to get an abortion. So, you know, this is a reality that they've been living for a while. Yeah, I mean, that was a huge takeaway from your piece for me. Like, it seemed to me on some level that the reality is that Hispanic and Latino women have been living with this reality of restricted abortion rights for decades. You know, the, the end of Roe did not come out of nowhere. This is the result of a decades-long campaign and, you know, a campaign that started by restricting abortion in the states. So it seems like this isn't and has never been a hypothetical maybe to a lot of these voters. It's it's a reality that they and, and their communities have really borne the brunt of and may have experienced more personally. Is that the right takeaway? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, I looked at data from 2019, so that's well before the end of Roe. And even in that year, Latinas accounted for a disproportionate amount of the total legal abortions reported that year. That might be in part due to their poor access to preventative health care. And mm. that includes things like sex education and family planning services. You know, I, I've talked to Latinas who say that sex is still a very taboo subject in many Latino households. And if they're not getting that information at home or from their doctor, 
then you would hope that they're getting it somewhere else. But um, it's just a much more limited information environment. So that was one aspect that they kind of attributed to that disproportionate rate. That's really interesting. Okay, you mentioned some polling that was done in your piece, and I want to pull out one of the findings because I found it really surprising. It said, for the first time ever, Latinos ranked abortion as one of the top five issues facing the country behind inflation and the rising cost of living. I'm curious, do experts think, is this a function of the poll coming out like right after Roe, or is there some evidence that there's like a real shift in political priorities going on here? Yeah, I mean, I think we have to take this in context. Um, Yeah. What's happening here isn't unique to Hispanics. Abortion has bumped up the priority list among every voting bloc following the Supreme Court's decision. People are angry and also grappling with what the decision means for abortion rights in their state. They're seeing the rights disappearing in real time. But it it does show that Hispanics are just as motivated as those other voting blocs around this issue. and, And that's something that Democrats are definitely paying attention to. So, you know, even beyond Kansas, we've seen in some of the special elections that have happened since Roe was overturned, Democrats really just hammering Republicans on their positions on abortion and having some success with it. And so I'm wondering, you know, based on your reporting um, and the polling that you've read, does this mean that Democrats should be running on abortion when making their pitch to Latino and Hispanic voters? What did the people you talked to say about that sort of takeaway? Yeah, so I think most of the Democratic strategists that I talk to say that Roe can only be a plus for Democrats among Hispanics, but it shouldn't be their entire platform. A major part, certainly, but but not the sole focus. The economic arguments, which Christian mentioned earlier, are also going to be incredibly important. And I think that's probably true for all groups of voters. Um, You know, Democrats cannot afford to focus solely on Roe when appealing to anyone. But for Hispanics in particular, you have to think about the kind of economic hardships that they've faced over the past few years in particular. They were hit hard by the pandemic because they were disproportionately represented among essential workers and therefore disproportionately exposed to the virus. They were overrepresented in industries hit hard by the pandemic, like construction, hospitality, and food service. They saw high levels of unemployment in 2020 and 2021, though that has since calmed down a bit. But, you know, basically... They've been through the ringer, um, and the Democratic message has to address that. Nicole, this piece was so interesting. I feel like I learned so much from it. Um, it's such an important subject, and I really appreciate you talking to me about it. Thanks again. Okay, we've got to take one more break, but when we come back, all three of us will be here to talk about the elephant in the room. It's the 2022 midterms. Hey, this is Scott Galloway, author, professor, entrepreneur, and most importantly, host of the Prop G podcast. We got a special series running on right now called The Future of Work, where I answer all your questions on, surprise, The Future of Work. Questions including, what are we missing when we work remotely? Or how do we handle work-life balance when a major opportunity comes knocking? From the provocative to the technical, we're offering insights you won't want to miss. So tune in to The Future of Work, a Pod special sponsored by Canva. You can find it on the Pod wherever you get your podcasts. And 
And we're back. I'm Marin Kogan, and with me are reporters Nicole Nerea and Christian Paz. I wanted to bring us all back to the table so we can talk about the broader implications of all of this as we head into November. Uh, Christian, I'm going to start with you. Um, just tell me, how are Hispanic voters going to vote? <laughs> That's a great question. <laughs> That's the million-dollar question, isn't it? It's the million-dollar question. I'll go out on a limb and say that most Latino Hispanic voters will probably vote for Democrats because that's a pretty safe bet. Um, okay, you're on the record now. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> there is um, high likelihood that that trend will continue. You know, one thing that was interesting in 2018 was that Republicans did make some small inroads in those congressional races. I think if you looked at the generic ballot in 2018, you know, Republicans did improve, obviously, on 2016 because of how poorly Republicans did in general in that election. But yeah, there is there's no strong way to know until people vote. There'll be a ton of great lessons um, after that happens to see what, what which of these pitches end up doing the best. Totally. And I feel like I owe you an apology for asking an intentionally <laughs> impossible to answer question. I mean, I think one of the big takeaways from reading both of your stories and really all of the stories that we have this month is that like no one actually knows and it's complicated and no one should. Um, I mean, this is the lesson with politics, you know, at this point, it's like no one should presume to know entirely. But I think, like you said, there's going to be a lot to learn. Nicole, are there any particular races that are on your radar for this cycle? Like which ones are you watching? Yeah, so I think Hispanic voters are going to be a major force in a few battleground states, particularly in close Senate and governor's races. I'm particularly looking at Arizona, Nevada, and Georgia. By some projections, Latino turnout is expected to be significantly higher in Arizona and Nevada than in the last midterm elections in 2018. And in close races, which we've seen in both of those states before, that could really tip the scales. Republicans are betting that they can build upon their gains among Latino voters in Nevada last cycle um, to win the competitive Senate race there, where Republican Adam Laxalt is challenging the incumbent Senator Catherine Cortez Masto. Arizona, very purple state, and up and down the ballot, there are competitive races for governor, for Senate, for secretary of state, for state attorney general. More than a third of the state's population is Hispanic, and that's only expected to grow in the future. Christian mentioned earlier how there's been kind of robust organizing of young Latinos in the state for at least a decade there, and they're credited with helping Biden win in 2020 and also with propelling the current Democratic senators, um, Kirsten Sinema and Mark Kelly, to the Senate. There's also a fast-growing Hispanic population in Georgia. They now number 1.2 million as of the 2020 census. They only accounted for a small percentage of the votes cast in 2020, only about 4%, but nevertheless, they're still credited with being part of this coalition of voters that helped Democrats Raphael Warnock and John Ossoff win their Senate races there in 2020, which effectively gave Democrats control of the Senate. So Warnock is up for re-election this year in a tight race. And then Democrat Stacey Abrams is also running for governor against Brian Kemp, who's the incumbent. So in all of these races, even if even in places where Hispanic voters don't make up a huge percentage of the population in a tight race, it, it really could matter. Christian, are there particular races that you're keeping an eye on? Yeah, definitely. As a Californian, I would be remiss to not mention at least two of the very close, um, according to the polls and according to how they voted in 2020, two districts, one in the Los Angeles area. This is the race between Mike Garcia and Christy Smith, um, where there is a significant Hispanic population. 
And the other is slightly north um, in the Central Valley region, where incumbent Representative David Valadeo is running against uh, a lawmaker, California lawmaker, Rudy Salas. Um, and this is also a district that has a very large Latino-Hispanic population, mostly Mexican-American, working class, farm workers, who in the past haven't tended to turn out at very high rates. Um, and it's one of the reasons why this district has been a swing district. Um, it was held by a Democrat before Valadeo and has kind of been tossed back and forth between Republicans and Democrats. I'm also looking at Florida. South Florida was kind of the center of the political world in 2020, especially on election night, because we got results back from Florida that same night. This is a place where um, at least two House seats flipped from Latinas holding those seats to now Republican Latinos who hold it. And this is specifically Florida's 27th, newly drawn Florida 27th district. Maria Elvira Salazar is running for re-election against Democrat Annette Tadeo. And then in the 28th district, this is where Carlos Jimenez, who flipped his seat from Debbie McCarcel Powell last, uh, last election, is running to hold that against uh, Robert Asensio, who's trying to challenge him this time around. Okay, let's hang on to South Florida for a second, because uh, Christian, I want to follow up with you about South Florida. But Nicole, I'm curious, you know, we talked a little bit about issues that Hispanic voters, you know, say that they care about right now. But I'm, I'm just wondering if we can sort of drill down on this. What are the top issues for Hispanic voters, at least according to the polling that we have heading into the midterms? So they prioritize a lot of the same issues that the general electorate prioritizes, in an August national poll of Latino voters by Mi Familia Vota and Unidos US, they listed inflation, then crime and gun violence, jobs in the economy, healthcare, and abortion as the most important electoral issues. One thing that I think is interesting to note here is that crime and gun violence rose in terms of importance after the mass shooting earlier this year at the Uvalde Elementary School in Texas and in an area that's mostly Hispanic. And also don't forget the 2019 shooting in El Paso, where again, most of the victims were Hispanic. So this is a community that's been victimized by gun violence in a very public way. And I think we're seeing that here in some of the priorities. Yeah, I think that's really interesting. And and again, I mean, it does sort of get to what Ruben Gallego is saying, which is like, you know, these are the issues that Americans writ large are concerned about. Um, you know, we, we share these concerns. And, and I think he's saying the party needs to be talking specifically to Latino and Hispanic voters, but to be addressing these things that are big national issues. Those are the big concerns. Um, Christian, so you have written about the rise of misinformation targeting Latino voters. I'm thinking a little bit about South Florida when when we have this conversation. So I'm, I'm just wondering if you can tell us what those messages look like and where Latinos are encountering those messages. Misinformation and disinformation, and there is an important distinction. One of them has intent, disinformation from a particular agent or person, and misinformation doesn't have to have intent behind it. It just spreads, can be organically, it can be word of mouth, it can be through social networks. And that is kind of one of the big things that Democrats were more willing to make to make this claim after the election in 2020 because they lost seats. And some of it was because of their own strategy. Some of it was because, and as you pointed out in South Florida, a very unique media ecosystem of Spanish language radio, Spanish language television, a lot of word of mouth, very closed off communities relative to how widespread some other Latino populations in the U.S. are. And 
in reporting out this story about the effect of misinformation now going into the midterms, one expert that I spoke to who's done some of this, uh, this analysis of how much misinformation is affecting Latino voters pointed out that South Florida is kind of the extreme, most unique case of where misinformation can have a role and really influence the way that people think about politics, people think about candidates, people think about these issues and how, how bad some of these issues are. And it's interesting when you compare what kind of misinformation is spreading now relative to 2020. In 2020, it was a lot of health misinformation, a lot about the pandemic, a lot about vaccines, a lot about masking, a lot about lockdowns. And then leading up to the 2020 election, it was uh, distortions about Joe Biden's record, just how liberal he was, just how socialist he was, a word that really made an impact in those communities in Florida that have large populations with the trauma of socialist or communist regimes in the past really still in their minds and in their memories. But it, I think that specific line about socialism was interesting because it really got at two levels of thinking, not just about whether or not Joe Biden actually is a socialist or would govern as a democratic socialist or was in line with Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren and that wing of the Democratic Party, but also this general fear, obviously, that some people might have about the role of government in their lives and about what socialism stands for, not necessarily the literal definition of that ideology, but about small versus big government, about control over schools, about how the economy should work. And now it's changed a bit because obviously we're emerging from the pandemic. We're in a different state with the economy, a different state of political issues. And so now some of those things are distortion that, that you see and that researchers were telling me about were distortions around Vice President Kamala Harris and the president's records on abortion, what they support, how much energy prices that had risen so much earlier in the summer um, were due to actions that the White House or that the administration had taken or about clean energy. And so those issues have since changed. And they've also just become much more democratized in a way. It's a lot of word of mouth, a lot of small scale influencers. It's Right. Yeah. I mean, I, I'm curious if you could talk a little bit more about what makes that sort of misinformation targeting Latino voters harder to counteract. I mean, I think there were two things that really jumped out at me from your writing about this. One is this idea that like the fact-checking sort of cottage industry that has sprung up to try to counter misinformation is much more robust in English than it is in Spanish. And two, I mean, I think the really tricky thing about misinformation about socialism and the Democrats is that that seems particularly hard to counteract if you're already inclined to believe that Democrats are socialists and that these policies are equal to socialism. It's like, it seems very hard to sort of uh, untangle that knot. To each of those points, I talked with Carlos Odio. He's a researcher over at Equis, a Spanish and Latino-focused political firm who's done some research on this. And the findings are very interesting in terms of who exactly would be more likely to believe something like a false claim or some form of misinformation and what the best way to reach that person is and to convince them otherwise. For the longest time, it seemed like 
when we think about misinformation, you think about who is vulnerable to misinformation, who is the person who would likely believe something, and you try to come up with a profile of who that is, and then you're like, okay, we need to fact check and, and make sure that those resources are available in Spanish, that they're available on these specific platforms. And there's like a, a divide here between both things that companies and government have an obligation to do, and that is true that there is more robust fact-checking or content moderation that happens on social media platforms in English, simply because they were built to post English spaces and right. as more people use them, yeah. you need to build up those resources in Spanish. But most Latinos in the U.S. speak English or are bilingual. So they're going to run into misinformation or, or false narratives and false claims outside of just those Spanish language spaces. And so when I was talking to Carlos at Equis, he explained one of the big findings was that the people who tend to be most willing to believe misinformation or false claims are actually people who would consider themselves pretty politically engaged and pretty politically informed. Oh, wow. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, and who are most partisan. Oh, boy. Um, and it's the people in the center, we called it kind of like a, a, a persuadable middle, tends to have the same profile as some of the swing voters or voters who don't vote as often. And hmm. these are people who are maybe not as politically informed or not as partisan um, and who approach misinformation or false claims with a lot of caution and a lot of uncertainty because they're not sure whether to believe it or not. So they're not going to make a judgment as to whether it's true or not. And it's that kind of person who also tends to be that Latino voter who may or may not vote in an election, who might not be sure whether to, then the other side of countering misinformation, there's only so much that a fact check from a news organization can do that you right. then send to somebody who believes something. It's also incumbent on, he's speaking from the Democratic side, on the party to counter these things, on candidates to fill voids of spaces or to simply respond to allegations and get at some of the, you know, the core concerns that people have that either makes them uncertain or makes them willing to believe something because it aligns with their ideology and fill some of those spaces. Right. And it seems like, I mean, one thing I took away from your piece is that there's also a risk in Democrats thinking that all they need to do is counter misinformation and they'll be good. You know, that's not the only thing no, I sure. think that they need to do. There was a lot of debate over this in post-2020 how much of a role did misinformation play in flipping districts and uh, rebuilding Republican standing among Latinos? And there's not going to be a very good way to tell because you can't track all pieces of misinformation that are flowing around the country. And so it has to be a subset of, of uh, you know, just one of the reasons. It can't be the reason. And that there is a risk um, for Democrats to say, oh, every position that is unpopular among Latinos is unpopular because they're misinformed on something. That's not the case. And to think about it that way, or for liberal activists or, or advocates to think that, oh, the way that we convince people is to say, actually, you're misinformed. This is what is actually true. That's not the best way to, to try to win hearts and minds and votes. Okay, last question I want to ask each of you. Nicole, I will start with you. If there's one thing you want to have listeners take away from this conversation, something to keep in mind as we approach the midterms, or just a misconception that you want to dispel based on this conversation, what would it be? I think maybe it's the notion that demographics are destiny. I feel like that's been some sort of a long-held myth from Democrats. The fact like 
that when the U.S. was going to become a majority minority country, it, it meant that it was going to become impossible for Republicans to win elections. And I do think the Democrats have taken that for granted for many years. And as a result, the outreach to Latino voters is still falling short. You know, I think this is a population whose political preferences aren't set in stone and might be much more fluid than Democrats have given them credit for. And, you know, I think the limited erosion that we saw in 2020 among Latino support for Democrats is a sign of that. So Democrats just need to do the work. And I've been having conversations with Latino Democratic strategists for years now about the lack of sustained investment and outreach, um, even in non-election years, they say it's really important. But, you know, in the places where this has happened, where Democrats do the work, it's paid off, like in Arizona, where there was a lot of organizing against the show me your papers law there. And in Nevada, where Harry Reid's political machine really prioritized engaging Latinos. But that should be happening nationally, and it's not. Okay, Christian, how about you? Kind of similar to that, but um, it's this line that emerged after 2020 in part, um, and it kind of gets back to the, the, the tweet that Ruben Gallego was responding to after that, um, which is this expectation that Latinos should be voting Democratic. This idea that this voting block, obviously, that isn't a block that is so diverse and different when looking at geography, religion, immigration status, etc., you're not entitled to their votes, our votes, without doing the work. It's, you know, it's not as simple as counting on Latino voters to be a part of your base and expecting them to show up every election if you're not also doing the work and not giving them reasons to vote for you. It's it's hugely about engaging them and reaching out to them early on, but it's also about understanding how maybe what you as a candidate, you as an activist, you as an advocate think is true and right and good, automatically what the average Latino voter will think. It requires you to do some of that direct talking to and engaging and asking and meeting people where they are and then building from there. Okay, well, thank you both so much for speaking with me. I feel simultaneously so much smarter and also humbled by how much I don't know and how much we all don't know headed into the midterms. That's all for us today. Thank you to Christian Paz and Nicole Norea for joining me. Our producer and engineer is Sophie Lalonde. Libby Nelson is our editorial advisor. Additional editorial help from Natalie Jennings and Sean Collins. Our deputy editorial director is A.M. Hall. And I'm your host, Marin Kogan. The Weeds is part of the Vox Media Podcast Network. What does it take to be an entrepreneur, and how is it changing in our ever-evolving business landscape? This is Scott Galloway, host of the Prop G Podcast, and an entrepreneur myself. Right now, we've got a special three-part series running all about the future of entrepreneurship. We're answering your questions on work-life balance, how to raise capital for your business, and more. Because when you're an entrepreneur, it's always important to look ahead at what's to come. So tune in to the future of entrepreneurship of Prop G Pod, special sponsored by Mercury. You can find it on the Prop G pod feed or wherever you get your podcasts. More to-dos, less time, and an infinite number of tools to keep track of. 
Sometimes doing business has never felt harder, but you don't need a miracle to hit your goals. You can just use HubSpot because their all-in-one customer platform can make growing your business infinitely easier. Imagine this, high quality leads, fast closing deals, wildly happy customers, and more benchmark breaking quarters. It's not a miracle, it's HubSpot. Visit HubSpot.com to get started today.